Thank you. Good morning to everyone here present, and a very good morning, and God bless you to all of those who are watching us throughout our community, throughout the country, and those in the world abroad. God bless you and keep you, and thank you for, for joining us this morning. I pray that you will have a very blessed new year and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, ladies. That was beautiful. Thank you very much. It's always beautiful. Um, please tune in. I suppose I can use that expression. Please tune in this Tuesday night uh, for Bible study. I will not be uh, teaching this Tuesday. I'll be out of town, but Brother Dan Cecil will be teaching Bible study Tuesday. So please uh, come to Warren and Melanie's or uh, tune in him with, with Dan to watch and, and listen and still partake of Bible study. Let me, of course, <clears throat> we went almost all the way through 2020 every Sunday with our Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guide, and we'll be going on a good, well, some months into 2021. Uh, the believers that need your prayers this morning that I'm bringing to your attention, they desperately need our prayers and our assistance in any way, shape, or form that we can get assistance to them. I bring to your attention uh, Christians who are in Somalia. And of course, as you can imagine, Somalia by uh, the designation of Voice of the Martyrs Ministry is a very much a restricted country. Some Somalis believe that to be Somali is to be Muslim, so that those who come to Christ are seen as denying not only their religion, but also their nationality. After years of drought and civil war, more Somalis live outside of Somali than actually in Somalia. Somalis believe that any place where a group of Somalis is located is Somalia and is governed by Somali law. Hence the problems with Somalis who come to the United States. Therefore, <clears throat> any Christian missionary or Christian convert even in a, in a Somali community anywhere in the world, faces severe persecution regardless of the national laws in that country. Obviously, another potentially serious problem. Still, the dispersion of Somali people has also created unique opportunities for the gospel to spread amongst them, especially through social media. They are now more reachable than ever before, and more Somali believers exist today than ever before. Many of these Somali Christians are passionate, very passionate about sharing their faith with their people wherever they may be. Most Somalis, however, are ardent Sunni Muslims. The Al-Shabaab terrorist organization and other Islamic groups persecute Christians. Family members also persecute Christians because they see conversion as a betrayal. There are no church buildings in Somalia and Christians do not meet regularly. It is strictly illegal to become a Christian or to evangelize in Somalia. Because there is little trust between people, believers do not reveal themselves, of course. Christians are actively hunted, and when discovered, they are immediately killed by al-Shabaab. Christians are more likely to be killed by a family member than to be imprisoned. Bibles are illegal, and there is almost no access to the sacred scriptures in Somalia. So there is a desperate need, almost no access to the Bible there. Voice of the Martyrs equips secret believers inside Somalia and supports those who carefully share their faith 
inside Somalia. Voice of the Martyrs also supports social media efforts that reach inside the, the country. So probably getting the sacred scriptures to these folks by way of technology is one of the clearer, clearest, most obvious, and probably safest ways to get the scriptures to Somali believers. And let's pray for all of those Somali folks who live outside of the country in some sort of banishment or exile that uh, they hear the gospel and that they can receive um, salvation. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray for these folks who are in such desperate need in Somalia. And I pray for the Somalian exiles, this country and throughout the world. I pray that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will saturate these people, that they will hear and that they will believe, that they will bow the knee to the one true only living God, Yahweh, the great I Am, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes, the God of the sacred scriptures, the one and only true God, and there is no other. Help them to find true and lasting salvation in you, you who are absolute and ultimate reality to every being in this universe that has lived, that is alive now, or ever will live. I pray for everyone in our church family who is on our prayer request list, and there are a number of them, and folks we've been praying for for some weeks, months, and will be praying probably for weeks and months more. We know who they are. You know who they are. I pray for every single solitary one of them. First of all, that their soul is happy in you, joyful in you, filled with your spirit and filled with the truth of your word. We pray for the complete and total healing of their body. We pray for the strength and courage of their families. We pray for their witness and for their testimony to doctors or nurses or technicians, any sort of medical personnel that they come in contact with. Help them to reveal who you are through their illness and through their situations and circumstances to everyone that they meet. Let their faith shine bright and truth be given in a world of darkness by way of them, all of them, everyone. Let everyone who is here, everyone who is watching receive the truth of your word from sacred scripture every day that they live and give that truth to unbelievers who desperately need the truth, who are suffocating in a world of lies and darkness. Help us to live in the truth, proclaim the truth, and be people of the truth, come what may. We pray, oh, particularly for our brothers and sisters in Somalia who are still there and who suffer terrible persecution. Please keep them safe. Please meet their needs. Please find a way for the sacred scriptures to feed their soul and to give them bravery and courage and strength of soul and heart and mind. We pray for our country. And it's a dire time of need. Help all of us to do our duty to keep freedom and liberty alive. And I thank you for the millions of people around the world who are praying for our country. Help us to do our duty to you, not only to one another, but to all of those around the world who are praying for us, who are watching us, and who are counting on us to keep freedom and liberty alive in this world. As precious little of it as there still is. And we pray that your perfect plan in and over and through this world will be perfectly executed to the last dot of the last die, which in your power, your strength, your might, and your wisdom, we know that it will. Help us to be obedient in all of the details contained therein. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize, the eternal kingdom, which is coming, which is on its way. 
Help us to keep our eyes upon the grand plan that Paul and the other blessed, inspired apostles make us aware of in sacred scripture. We pray that by your word and by your Holy Spirit that you will guide us through all of the details. Never let us lose sight of the forest for the trees. Help us through those trees that we navigate our way through on a daily basis. Hear our prayers, O sovereign God. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our faults and our failures on a daily basis. Sanctify us, pick us up, clean us up, set us on our way by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. Help us to be strong and valiant and joyful in you. So may the meditations of all of our hearts this day, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our one and only rock and redeemer. You who are our only hope, and you are more than hope enough for one and all the world over. May all honor and glory be to Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please for the reading of the word of the Lord? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus." That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. New life versus the old. That's the main theme uh, of the passage that we'll unpack and explore this morning, verses 17 to 24. Again, let me give you something of the main theme, uh, idea, or summary. Verses 17 to 24, I borrow from uh, theologian Clinton Arnold and his wonderful commentary I've been enjoying for some time now. He writes, Christians are called to live their daily lives in a way that is sharply differentiated from the world around us sharply differentiated from the world around them and from the lifestyle that characterized their old pre-Christian past, their life before conversion. Paul wants the Ephesian believers, their lives to be determined by their relationship with Jesus Christ and the new identity that they have in Him. This should determine the way that we live. And this will involve, therefore, obeying the Holy Spirit of God, thereby allowing the Holy Spirit of God to change our way of thinking change the believer's way of thinking and to bring the believer's lifestyle into conformity with that new identity, end quote. So, verse 17, This I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as these Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So when Paul says, This I say therefore, it's rather formal speech in the original Koine Greek. He's making something of a, very much a truth statement if not something of a declaration or a proclamation. This I say, therefore, that is, 
because of all of the truths that I have proclaimed, that I have taught you up to this point in the letter, therefore I now say the following. Therefore I now make the following statement. This I say, toton un lego. This I declare. This I decree. That's how it is literally translated from the original language. He uses the word lego, L-E-G-O. Lego means to declare, to decree. It is exactly the same word that we find in many historical documents from the Greco-Roman age. It's exactly the same sort of statement used by Roman emperors and Roman governors and other officials to announce official decrees. So Paul is giving something of an official apostolic decree, an inspired decree. This I declare. And what is he declaring? What is he decreeing? Well, this is how those who have their new identity in Jesus Christ are to live. This I proclaim. This is how you are to live. This is how you are not to live. That's what he's declaring. Paul states that what he teaches, also have you noticed in that verse, is in perfect agreement with the Lord. In perfect agreement with the teachings and the will of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul is merely affirming, as he says, the Lord's will for the lives of his redeemed people. And as he writes, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. The word he uses for walk is pedipateo. It can literally be translated as walk. We physically walk, but it's used metaphorically often. And as he uses it here metaphorically, it means the way you live your life. The way that you characteristically live your life, your habitual lifestyle. Now when he uses the word Gentile there, he's using Gentiles almost as something of a new century uh, Jewish figure of speech. He does not necessarily mean Gentiles as in people who are not racially Jews. When he uses the word Gentile there, it's almost a shorthand expression meaning unbelievers, unbelieving Jews as well as Gentiles, unbelievers, pagans, those who do not believe in Christ, those who do not believe in the truth given to us by the one true living God. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Christian believers in Ephesus, do not live your life any longer like the pagan unbelievers do. They live their lives in the futility of their minds. Futility, the word he uses there, is a very strong word. Mataios is the word that we traditionally translate into English as futility. It means worthless, vain, empty, profitless, aimless fruitless, etc. That's what's in the minds of pagan unbelievers. Pretty strong statement. This is the way pagan unbelievers live their lives because this is what is in their minds. Their thinking is futile, worthless, vain, empty, profitless, aimless, and fruitless. I may be getting myself into hot water here, but was there ever a time in American society and history and culture where that was put on more sad and tragic display than it is now? Verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. You could just as well translate that as excluded from the life which comes from God. The life given by God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So let's unpack this, of course, first for, uh, phrase by phrase. First of all, pardon me, being darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God. Here's his logic. Here's his reasoning. If your mind is full of futility, what is aimless and vain and worthless, then of course you will be in darkness. You will have no proper or right understanding about the things that matter most in this life. Life's ultimate realities. Therefore, your life will be in the end vain and futile. It will be in darkness. The worst kind of darkness he's speaking of here. Spiritual darkness. Darkened in their understanding. The word he uses for understanding is dianoia. And dianoia, you and I could just as well probably translate as your mindset. Person's mindset, as we say. Your reasoning your thinking capabilities, your thinking faculties. Excluded from the life of God or the life that comes from God. Paul is saying they are alienated from the one and only true life to be had, which is a gift of God and a gift from God. They do not possess that life. Therefore, their lives are vain and futile, and their understanding is hopelessly darkened. They're excluded. They've excluded themselves from the one and only true life, which is in the one and only true God. The one and only true God, who is the one and only true source of true understanding and true life. Theologian Peter O'Brien writes in his commentary upon this verse, Pagan unbelieving thinking suffers from the consequences of having lost touch with reality. God is reality. I like to say that all the time. He who is absolute and ultimate reality for everyone and everything. They have no life in Him. They have no relationship with Him. They are deliberately and willfully ignorant of Him. Therefore, they are completely out of touch with true reality. Isn't that obvious these days? And so you have tragic and fortunate people out there who believe that they can literally create their own reality, that is madness. Madness. And in the end, completely destructive. That's what Paul's speaking about. It's exactly what he's speaking about here. And so, as O'Brien continues, they, they're left fumbling about with inane trivialities and worthless issues instead of getting a handle and a grasp of life's most important realities. Without a relationship with God, what do you get? Darkness, futility. Without life in God, no proper touch or understanding with actual and ultimate reality. End quote. Then Paul writes, continuing on, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now, many Bible scholars and New Testament Greek scholars argue, and I agree with them heartily, that the ignorance that Paul mentions here the ignorance here that he is speaking of, many argue, is a willful ignorance. It is a deliberate ignorance, which makes the pagan unbelievers culpable, accountable. A willful and deliberate ignorance that is in and of itself an act or attitude of rebellion against the one and only true God who is reality. They are ignorant of God and His ways because they want to be. They choose to be. They wish to reject Him and not know Him personally. The result? Hardness of heart. A dead, stone-cold, calcified heart. Now, I've given you this description before, but it always pays to give it again, especially when we have so many folks 
here and around the world, literally watching and listening. I have to give you the definition of what Paul means in the first century A.D. by heart. The word is cardia, from which we get cardiac. It can be used physically and literally. Physically, it is that muscle pumping blood in your chest. But like we use the word heart metaphorically, Koine Greek used the word cardia metaphorically. It means the heart as in not the emotions. When many English-speaking people today mean my heart this, my heart that, they're usually just speaking about their emotions. That's not what Paul means. When Paul uses cardia, heart metaphorically, to the ancients of the first century, it means the place where they believe the will, the reasoning, the intellect, the soul, the core of your being rested. In the core of your being, that's what he means. They have a dead, calcified soul. A dead, calcified core of their being. It's stone cold dead. Because they do not have the one and only true life from God. Verse 19. And they having become callous, thereby, having given, have, pardon me, have given themselves over to... Now your English translation, depending on which one you have here today is going to read either licentiousness or sensuality, or something very similar. For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. All right? Or let me offer you this translation as well. Who in their callousness, because of this dead heart, have given themselves over to licentiousness or sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now Paul is really laying it on hard here. He is using some hard language. In fact, the word that he uses that we translate as impurity, you could probably even more accurately translate it as filth. Strong language. Who in their callousness because of these darkened minds and dead hearts, they have therefore given themselves over to licentiousness, to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of moral impurity or filth. This is the result of the pagan unbelieving life. A life lived in empty, empty, worthless spiritual darkness, bereft of right understanding. A life in rebellion against God. This is the result of the dead, calcified, unbelieving heart without the one true life given by God. This is what Paul is saying. Do not be like this. I trust you are not. Because you have received the new birth and you have new life in Christ and God. Do not be like these unbelievers who are living these type of lives of depravity. Be done with that. Theologian S.M. Bowne, his commentary writes, This is a portrait of total depravity, isn't it? Which refers to the infection of sin that has permeated the whole person of those who Paul writes earlier in the letter are by nature children of wrath. But total depravity is not absolute depravity. Many people outside of Christ do manage a thin veneer of decency and decorum held in place probably by fear or God's common grace and restraining influence. But Paul's words express the viewpoint of the last judgment. And the last judgment will pierce all such veneers, no matter how thick or attractive on the outside. End quote. So let me now read and unpack for you verse 20 and 21 together. You did not learn Christ this way. Indeed, you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. Or, 
Let me offer you this translation as well. Whereas in contrast, whereas in contrast to the unbelievers, you did not learn the Christ in that way. For surely you have heard about him. You were taught in him since truth is in Jesus. So now Paul makes the great contrast, doesn't he? A very stark, a very sharp contrast. A contrast to the way of unbelieving, pagan living and thinking. Paul tells believers that they have learned a totally different way of living, totally different way of life, totally different way of thinking and of understanding. Thinking that comes by way of Christ, thinking that comes by way of Christ's work, Christ's teaching. Let me quote to you an ancient Christian theologian, John Chrysostom, from many centuries past. He writes, or wrote, So then this is what it means to learn the Christ and the Messiah. New life. To live an upright, godly life. For the one who lives wickedly does not know God and is not known by Him. End quote. Let me give you a quote from a theologian from the 19th century, a little more recent, Charles Hodge. To learn Jesus Christ does not mean merely to learn His doctrines, as important as they are, but to attain knowledge of Christ as God the Son, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and new life. End quote. Now as for Paul saying, hearing Christ, being taught in Christ, learning Christ, I give you a thought from an even more contemporary Christian theologian, Marcus Bart. He writes, When Jesus Christ is the headmaster, Jesus Christ is the teaching matter, Jesus Christ is the teaching method, Jesus Christ is the curriculum, and Jesus Christ is the academy, then the gift of new life in Jesus takes the place of the most important of diplomas. End quote. Learning Christ. What does he mean by learning Christ? Well, I read you several wonderful quotes from great theologians of the past. Learning Christ means this. It means receiving Him. It means bowing the knee to Him as Savior and Lord and acknowledging Him as Savior and Lord of your life. It means welcoming Him as the ultimate authority in and over your life for all that He was, all that He is, all that He ever shall be, everything He represented, everything He did, and everything He taught. Obeying Him, following Him, emulating Him. That's what it means to learn Christ, to live life in Christ, thereby being molded and shaped by His work and His teaching. And it's also very important to remember that to hear Him, learn Him, to be taught in Him, how does this primarily happen in the 21st century A.D.? What's one of the primary ways in which this is accomplished or means in which this is accomplished? Most of you, thank God, are holding it in your lap. Right here. Right here. You want to learn Christ? Here He is. The paramount importance of the Word of God. Sacred Scripture in the life of the believer. This is how you hear Him. This is how you learn Him. This is how you are taught in Him. And as Paul writes, the truth is in Jesus. Meaning, He is the embodiment and the personification of all truth. He is the source of all truth, as He is God the Son. 
the second person of the triune God, the one and only true living God, the source of all wisdom and all knowledge known and possibly to be known. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, Jesus quotes, speaks, proclaims. John quotes him in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. The truth is Jesus. Jesus is truth and the truth. That is what Paul is saying. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay that aside. <laughs> Be done with that. Lay aside the old man, the old woman, the old self, the old sin nature, which is corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Let me offer you another translation. That you have shed your old man, the old nature, in regard to your former manner of life, which is perishing in corruption due to its deceitful desires. Now, the imagery that Paul is using here, he's, he's painting you something of a word picture. And the folks in the first century A.D. would have gotten it a little more vividly in Koine Greek than, than we do perhaps in English. The word that he, words that he uses in the original language, shed the old self, set aside uh, the old man. The language that he uses is exactly the same type of vocabulary that was used for a person removing an article of clothing and putting on a different article of clothing. He's saying, shed the old sin nature, the old man, the old woman, your former self. Take it off and throw it away like you would a nasty, soiled, wretched, worn-out piece of clothing and replace that with a nice, new, shiny, clean, beautiful, healthy, suitable piece of clothing. That's the word image for you that he's creating in the original language. Notice he says, take, he doesn't say take off the old sin nature and let it go. You're not creating a vacuum. You never create a vacuum. When Christ and the apostles tell you to get rid of something, in the next breath they will tell you to replace that something with something better. Replace the old sin nature, evil, and the futile lifestyle, and replace it with a new nature that comes from new life in Christ, the only life in the end that is to be had, and the source of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That's what he's saying. So, on the basis of the believer's new relationship with Christ, the new birth, the believer's new identity in Christ, the believer learning Christ, believers are to be shed of, to be rid of, every corrupt practice that they see going on in a fallen world around them. Be rid of all that. Take it off, throw it away. Put on something, something different, something new. Right? Believers are to be shed of, to be rid of every corrupt practice that was part of the old sin nature, the old man, the old woman, the old way of life. Now notice, look at verses 22 and 24 carefully. Look at it carefully, and as you do, you will see that new life, identity, new, new life, new identity, teaching, learning Christ, entails three things, basically. One, Shedding the old man, the old nature. Two, renewal of the believer's mind. And I believe the correct translation is, you are to be renewed in your mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. And number three, putting on the new creation person. The new nature, the new life that comes from the new birth. And this, folks, for many, many, many centuries by very fine theologians, this is considered to be the foundation of all Christian morality 
and all Christian ethics. The old has passed away, a new life has begun. This is the foundation of your ethical life, your moral life in this world on your way to your eternal home. Believers have died with Jesus Christ on that cross. The old man, the old woman, the old nature is dead, nailed to the cross of Christ, as we say. And with that, slavery. Slavery in sin, slavery to sin, slavery to spiritual darkness that characterized the old life. A new life is here. If you truly have received the new life in Christ, a new identity is here. Eternal life is here. If you have been born again, eternal life is in you right now and always will be. Characterized by freedom from sin and corruption. Now you are to pursue a life of holiness, a life in pursuit of Christ-likeness. You are to now be on your way to truly becoming an image-bearer of God. The reason that human beings were made in the first place. Verse 23, And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Most of the English translations are translate that as in the spirit of your mind. But frankly, I think the spirit there should be capitalized. I agree with the New Testament Greek scholars that believe Paul is actually speaking not of the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit. Let me explain that. Another uh, translation, and that you are undergoing renewal by the Spirit in your mind. This is a somewhat similar statement to the very famous statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be renewed in the Spirit of your mind. Now some translators, as I stated a moment ago, argue that what Paul is saying, you, Christian believer, are to be renewed by the Holy Spirit in your mind. I agree with that. I think that's what the inspired apostle is saying. And if this is a more correct translation, then Paul is making an appeal to Christian believers to what? Obey the Spirit of God. And He will transform you. He will renew your way of thinking to enable you to better pursue the new life in Christ. Again, many believe that Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit here, not the human spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit of God. He is the power. He is the influence in renewing the minds of Christian believers. In the book of Ephesians, Every reference to spirit, the word spirit in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Almost every time, if not every time, Paul speaks, writes the word spirit in this letter. He's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. And this is, of course, the theme of the work of the third person of the Trinity in the life of believers, a major theme in the letter. So by new life in Christ, by the renewing power... Of God's Spirit, believers are to undergo a transformation, he's saying, a renewal of the mind, the soul, the inner life, the inner self. And the focus here, interestingly enough, is on your mind. Greek word nous, N-O-U-S, very important word. And here he is teaching, and never forget this, the importance, the paramount importance of the life of the mind. Christian believer, do not ever neglect the life of the mind. All through sacred scripture, Old and New Testament, the importance of the life of the mind is hammered home by way of the Holy Spirit through the blessed biblical authors. Never neglect the life of your mind. So much of the battle that you will wage in your life is in your mind. 
because it's intimately connected to the soul. And let me tell you something, if you haven't noticed heretofore, there are many evil forces out there who want to control your mind. Oh, is there a battle for the minds of human beings. And I'll bring it even closer to home. Oh, is there a battle for the minds of Americans. Never neglect the life of your mind and make sure your mind is being filled with the truth of He who is the truth. Because we are living in a country that is suffocating in lies and liars. Oh, so much of the battle is going to be won or lost there. But it's a cosmic battle, isn't it? The battle for truth. The cosmic truth. He who is the truth against the cosmic liar. And one of these days, that battle is going to come to a crashing end when truth wins once and for all, and all lies and liars are consigned to the place where they belong. Be a person of the truth, in the truth, and live. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one will enjoy the eternal kingdom in the real world that is coming except by way of and through me. He who is the truth said. There are folks out there who are suffocating in lies, brothers and sisters. Give them the truth. They desperately need it. Never neglect the life of the mind. The renewal or transformation of the mind is a process, as the ESV study Bible states in a wonderful textual note. The renewal or transformation of the mind is a process in which believers begin to think in new and right ways as they meditate on the truths of God's Word, or as Paul says, as they are learning Christ. Now in the Greek, the word mind is nous, N-O-U-S. Let me define for you exactly what that word means. When Paul says mind, noose, he means a human being's ability and capacity to reason. To reason properly. To understand properly and correctly. Thereby having the ability to make moral decisions and correct lifestyle choices and decisions. It overlaps with the metaphorical meaning of heart. This is what the Holy Spirit must transform and must renew. The Spirit's renewing work in the Christian's mind is a very sharp contrast, isn't it, to the meaningless, futile way of thinking in the minds of unbelievers that Paul spoke of earlier. Verse 24. And put on, or and so, therefore, what should you be doing? Put on the new self, the new man, the new woman, the new nature, the new life. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Or, allow me to offer you another translation. And put on the new man, the new self, who is created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So, after reading ourselves, shedding off the old life, the old ways Christian believers are to live their lives, in conformity with their new life, their new identity in Christ. 
this life is to be characterized by traits or characteristics of God Himself. You should be on your way to becoming an image bearer of God, mirroring, reflecting His character, His nature, His thoughts, His ways, His behavior, which is what? True righteousness, true holiness. Very important to note, God creates this new life. We don't. We can't. God creates this new life. It is a gift given to us by God. He creates this new life. After we are given this new life, oh, are we to pursue it with all of our might, every day that we live, every fiber of our being. He gives us the new life. We are to pursue it. Pursue the life that the new birth gives you, that God created in us. God, through Christ, Paul is saying, is creating a new humanity for Himself. Are you a member of that new humanity? He is creating a new humanity for Himself, who will rule and reign with Him in the perfect world and eternity, who will bear and conform to His own image, His own likeness in eternity, to be image bearers of God. Again, the very purpose for which humanity was created in the first place. That's the goal. That's where all of this is headed. And God's image and God's likeness is, of course, one of true holiness and true genuine righteousness. Now, holiness, the word there, let me pick this apart for you. He uses an interesting word. The word for holy is hagioi or hagios, holy ones. He uses a slightly different word here. Hosiotes is the word for holiness that he uses here. And hosiotes, in most uh, usages of this word, it can suggest moral uprightness or character or purity, but most of the time it refers to a person's proper attitude or devotion to God. That may be what Paul is saying. So you will live a life with a proper relationship with God, a life with a proper attitude towards God, a life of proper devotion towards God, hosiotes, holiness in that way. And of course, righteousness, very important. Koine Greek word there, dikaiosune. Wonderful word for righteous or upright or righteousness that Paul uses constantly in his letters. Here in this context, dikaiosune, righteousness means fair and equitable. Fair and equitable. Just, upright. Righteous as in, yes, morally pure, morally pristine. A person of pristine, upright character and integrity. Or, as our founders would say, a person of virtue. A person who lives their life by what is right, by what is proper, in their conduct and in their disposition. That's what Paul is saying your, new, your life should be by way of the new life in Christ. This is what we are to pursue. This is what we are to become. This is what we are to put on in order to bear God's image. This is what we were created for. This is what we were redeemed for. Last thought of the day. I give to Brother S.M. Bao from his commentary. He has a few interesting comments as he closes this section in his commentary. He writes, So in this text that we've just explored, believers, we are told, have or should Shed the old man and don the new man, the new self, the new life, because it is a work of God. So this death of the old man was done in Christ on the cross, and he is telling us we were raised anew with Christ. 
Yet for some believers, this is precisely the place where problems arise. Some people with sensitive consciences see nothing but what appears to be the old self, battling them every day, battling every halting step forward in the Christian life. And none of the evidence that we are in fact new creatures in Christ can be seen by them. How frustrating. What are you to do now? Spiritual disciplines, tried and true, 12 steps to a happy and victorious life, positive thinking, what? What do we do? Well, the place to start for the biblical answer is right here in this passage. The fact is, just as justification is by faith in Christ alone, this same saving faith in Christ's finished work is also the essential means for our growth in the pursuit of holiness and the new life of holiness. We believe in faith that we have donned the new man, not because we always see it or feel it every day, but because the Word of God teaches it. And we believe God and we believe His Word to be the absolute truth. We consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, an act of faith, because it is the foundational truth for a believer in Christ. He says we have been set free. Now we walk in that freedom by faith. Sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, becoming holy, is by faith. We will never see enough good fruit to satisfy our own conscious, consciences if we look to that fruit as the source of our hope. He is the source of our hope. If you have truly entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are light. Now walk as children of the light by faith. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, thank you for your everlasting word given to us by our blessed brother Paul. Thank you for the truth of your word, which guides us to all truth, to you who are the source of all truth, that we may live in you, the truth. And the truth will set us free. The truth gives us new life. The truth prepares us for the next life the one and only life in the end truly to be had. By way of this passage and the others that we study, I pray faithfully every week, guide us faithfully through this pilgrimage of this life, this side of eternity, into the next, to truly arrive as image bearers of God, the reason for which we were created and made a part of your plan, redeemed in the first place. Please let these truths sit wisely and well in the minds of everyone who hears these words, here and abroad, for the battlefield is raging for our minds. Give us victory over the evil one in our minds. Triumph in Christ in our minds. And I pray for all of our church members here who are present this morning and our church members who will be watching in a few moments as we come to your table to celebrate what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us by divine decree and plan so long ago. And this table which points yet to the future. 
when all believers will be gathered together as one people, one family, in Christ, at His table, in His kingdom, forever and forever. Amen. To prepare for the Lord's table, let's stand and sing hymn number 81, verses 1, 2, and 4. He leadeth me.